Well, hello there. It's Christine Marie Mason, your host for the Rose Woman Pod, where every week we talk about something that will bring a little bit more freedom or liberation into our thought patterns. This week, my guest is Danielle Simone Brand. She's the author of Weed Mom, the Can of Curious Woman's Guide to Healthier Relaxation, Happier Parenting, and Chilling the Fuck Out. A few years ago, she wouldn't have self-described as a weed mom, but she's found her sparkle in writing about cannabis to inform, uplift, and occasionally challenge her readers while helping push the conversation forward. And she's written for The Week, Civilized Vice, Double Blind, and so many more. She's a BA from Dartmouth, MA from American University, and has worked as a yoga teacher and trainer, a staff writer and researcher on issues of international conflict resolution and so much more. She lives with her family and a Barky Terrier in the Pacific Northwest. Cannabis, cannabis, cannabis. Marijuana, marijuana, marijuana. You know, in 2012, when Colorado became the first state in the United States to legalize recreational marijuana, it was unclear what would happen. But the result since then has been that 18 states so far, two territories and the District of Columbia, have all legalized recreational marijuana. And 36 states, four territories in D.C., have legalized medical marijuana. It seems like we are in the middle of a long unwinding. Well, now we're in the era of couture cannabis, but I thought it would be helpful before we listen to this fantastic interview with Danielle to go back a little bit in time and really understand how recent the legislation and the public relations campaign against marijuana really is and perhaps how it came to be. So let's just start by saying it wasn't until 1937 that marijuana was taxed even. I want you to go back to 1970 and think of what was going on in the country at the time. You had the backlash against the Vietnam War. You had the backlash against the growing military-industrial complex, civil rights movements, hippie movements, peace and love, and all of that stuff. And it was heavily co-located with use of psychedelics, use of cannabis, and other things. And many of the people in that movement were openly using cannabis and antagonizing the establishment. In 1970, coming into a a place where marijuana since 1937 had been taxed, but it had a lot of loopholes that was really left up to the states to do what they wanted to do. Some states, uh, marijuana was a felony, but some it was really nothing big, no big deal. Uh, Nixon really wanted to get it denounced and identify it as a dangerous drug. He was coming up against simultaneously a legalization movement that was going on even as far back as the 60s. So Nixon had this very law and order approach. And in response um, to this desire to have more control, they created the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970. It wanted to increased controls by the pharmaceutical industry over the supply of certain drugs and tracking and provide a lot of law enforcement and and other support, including rehabilitation and treatment funding. But in, in 1970, this is where the Controlled Substances Act originated from. It ranked all drugs on their potential for treating illness or treating conditions, as well as their potential for addiction. You, you may be as surprised to find out as I was that drugs like cocaine and morphine uh, were Schedule two, even though they were very addictive. And that was because they were sometimes prescribed by doctors. 
But drugs that were associated with the counterculture, like LSD and peyote, were placed in Schedule I, and that made the possession of those things a federal offense. Nixon really, 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 really wanted marijuana to be in that list. You know, he went out to get lobby for support in Congress, and the Congress just basically said they didn't know enough uh, to decide on that. So Nixon convened a commission, and he appointed a person that he knew wanted to be a federal judge uh, to chair that commission, a guy named Schaefer. And he told him that he wanted a strong statement against marijuana. But even though Schaefer knew that that was the president's opinion, uh, it didn't influence his work. And the Schaefer Commission was very rigorous in its approach. So I'm reading to you now from Grassroots, a book by Emily Dufton, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. It said, they conducted numerous research projects, interviewed dozens of doctors, law enforcement officials, and scientists, and even heard testimony from Allen Ginsberg, who, speaking before the commission in San Francisco and wearing a hat and tie, emphasized that marijuana was a creative tool for artists and no one should be put in jail for using it. The members also met a surprising number of people who believed that marijuana should not be illegal. The Schaefer Commission's explosive 1,184-page report came out conclusively in support of decriminalization by arguing that the widespread views of marijuana's harm were almost uniformly wrong. After conducting over 50 studies and numerous hearings, the commission found that not only was marijuana widely used, we're talking in 1972 now, 24 million Americans had tried it at least once and 12 million considered themselves at that time to be regular users, but that anti-marijuana laws did more harm than good and that the drug caused none of the violent effects that Nixon hoped to correlate with its use. Instead, the report found that marijuana users were in no way physically, biochemically, or mentally different from non-users, and that claims regarding the country's marijuana problem were exaggerated, polarizing, and frequently wrong. Harsh anti-marijuana laws and restrictions on pot-related medical research were not solutions, and in fact only resulted in antagonizing young voters and generating public distrust of the police. So I know that that wasn't something that I was aware of at the time, and I went through my young adulthood, as many, many others did, with a pretty heavy bias against pot and stoners and all of the other things that came with it. So here we are. It got scheduled as a Schedule One drug. Now we fast forward to the 2010s and the 2020s when not only is it getting legalized and spreading across the nation, but even if you look across the earth, there are 54 countries that have either decriminalized or legalized or don't enforce marijuana laws for recreational use. And yet we still have a lot to learn. So if you are used to your Wednesday wine uh, or your Friday happy hour and you don't see an issue with that, maybe you're curious about cannabis and women and women's health. And here to help us out with that is Daniel Simone Brand. I'm so excited to be talking to you today. I think we're a generation apart. And that means you grew up with a very different perspective on the magical plant called cannabis. And I'm so excited to introduce our community to your thoughts and your journey. So I thought maybe we could get started by you just telling us sort of how your perspective was when you're growing up and how it came to change. What's been your journey with marijuana? 
you know, I don't know if we have had different experiences or not. You can tell me when I'm done. Um, but I did grow up actually kind of having stereotypes and stigmas about it. Um, I grew up in Hawaii where there is a pretty strong cannabis culture, but it just wasn't really the culture that I was immersed in as a, as a teen growing up there. I was aware of it. Um, but fast forward a bit, I met and married a cannabis enthusiast, um, even though I wasn't one at the time. <laughs> um, and, you know, actually, our relationship in for, for, for many years reinforced some of my stereotypes, even though I you know fell in love with my husband for a lot of reasons. And he's, he's a great guy and smart and interesting and all sorts of things. But he was self-medicating with cannabis in a way that wasn't actually serving him all that well. And that went on for quite a while. Can I just tell you, I met a guy and married a guy who was self-medicating through cannabis and he was like a lawyer and, you know, out there like making environmental policy. And, and little did I know he was hiding reefers in the rafters in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> That's what you then learned to say, like, and hiding it, hiding it because he didn't want to be disbarred or something. Well, so, you know, so what happened is the dynamic between my husband and I developed where I was judgmental of his use and he would also hide it. And so, you know, for years, kind of those, those stigmas and stereotypes were reinforced for me and I didn't understand it as a wellness tool or a mindfulness tool the way I came to understand it later. So, you know, my own experience. And, and then, of course, when I had tried cannabis just here and there, like late teens and in college, I, there was no rhyme or reason to it for me. Sometimes I felt hungry. Sometimes I felt sociable. Sometimes I just wanted to go to sleep. And I didn't really know why, because I didn't understand the nuances and the different cannabinoid combinations that can affect the way we feel, different terpene combinations, dose, of course. So, you know, I just didn't really, I didn't think it was for me for quite a while until I did. Well, I think that's interesting. I mean, that, that that has seen a lot of migration, as I'm sure we'll get into, in terms of stabilization, predictability, formulation, which wasn't there when it was just being sold on the black market. Exactly. That's a huge advantage of the legal marketplace is the ability to know exactly what's in your product, the exact amount of THC, CBD, other cannabinoids, the percentages that you're consuming, because we there's just a lot more to it. There's a wide spectrum of cannabis use that I came to understand later in life through that wellness path. So I have this judgment also, and I was also confused. I felt like when my partner was smoking, I couldn't feel him or and he couldn't feel me. Like I felt he felt he wasn't available in the, you know, he was happier and he was less anxious and relaxed, but I really couldn't get to sort of a real dialogue with him. And often he wouldn't remember what we talked about when he was smoking. And so I just wonder about that, that I feel like there's some story in there around releasing the judgment and sort of this way you came into it. Um, how did you change your mind? I changed my mind because honestly, I fell in love with cannabis from an intellectual perspective before I even appreciated its effects on me. Mm. And um, so I was becoming a freelance writer sort of end of 2017 in that in that vicinity. And I was living in California at the time. Legalization was about to hit 2018 in January. And so there were um, a lot of assignments that I could get around cannabis. And so I had to learn on the fly. I had to really learn as I was writing and truly found that it was fascinating, this 
convergence of, um, of social justice, of business, of science, of health and wellness, um, the science, obviously, you know, the, the uh, whatever we're, you know, all, 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 the, all the different research that's going on right now. So I absolutely felt like it was an interesting intellectual pursuit to write about. And then I started interviewing people who told me, it's helped me give up pharmaceuticals. It's given me back my life. It's helped me live pain-free. It's helped me sleep through the night, all these different things. And I thought, this is this could be a wellness tool for me too, maybe. Let me give it a really cautious try. So I got a low-dose vape pen. I don't really do vape pens anymore, but um, you know that was an easy entry product for me at the time. Got on my yoga mat, and I found that it really enhanced my yoga practice, and it helped me feel more embodied, more present, more in tune, and spiritual, honestly. So that was my first kind of adult foray into cannabis use. And I realized from there, this is something I could incorporate, especially as a mom. That is a long list of benefits. I talked to some people who also talk about it as kind of a magical plant, that all of the, it's not just the cannabinoid. It's not that just that, it's also like the hemp components and that there are so many other things that the plant blesses people with. So can you speak a little bit to that? What is the nature of the plant itself? Oh, that's an interesting question. I don't think I've ever been asked that. I think that, you know, so there's this famous Bob Marley quote, when you smoke the herb, it reveals you to yourself. Hmm. And I like that. I think that it can do that. I think that um, if if consumed intentionally, you know, a clean product in the right moment, right dose for you, it truly can do that. It can connect us to our deeper selves, our perhaps higher selves, the parts of ourselves that are more open, more empathetic, more interested in connection and being in the moment. Um, I also think that it can be overused and help us check out. You know, you you referenced that a little bit, and I did find that same kind of pattern with my husband earlier in our relationship when he was smoking. He was consuming a lot, and I felt like there was a veil between us. Like there was just not quite that deep relational ability there. Um, and so I think it's dose dependent for me too. You know, even now I notice that if I dip a little bit more over that line into consuming slightly more, say it's a Saturday night and I'm just hanging out at home with my family, I feel a little bit more far away. I'm relaxed, I'm happy, but I feel a little bit more far away. So it's a sweet spot, finding the dose that works for you for what you're looking for. If you want to connect more, don't overdo it. <laughs> okay, so so I want to get back to the dosing and the sort of tweaking it and how to get started. But before we do that, I want to feel into what it was like in 2017. Like, I think Colorado went first, right? Mm-hmm. Colorado and Washington. And they really were surprised to see who were the first recreational users, if I remember that time. And they were very surprised at how many edibles were being sold versus smoke, whatever that's called, bud. Mm-hmm. Yeah, flower or bud. Edibles versus flower. And they were surprised who was buying it. It ended up being a lot of office workers nurses and people who had stressful jobs and and people who wanted to consume it in a subtle way without the scent. Uh, so I think this normalization has been, uh, you know, people are kind of waiting for it. They needed it, they wanted it, but they weren't willing to do something that was illegal. And then it entered the mainstream in such an interesting way. How did that process really happen from someone who was on the ground watching it? 
you know, I can't speak to Colorado, um, but in California, it, you know, it's, it's such a huge state and so many different markets um, based on where you are. Northern California, Southern California, different parts of California where you don't have access to legal cannabis at all in your county or in your jurisdiction. So it just it depends really widely. Um, I think that the legal marketplace absolutely opened up the possibility to consume for a lot more people because, as you were saying, many people didn't want to break the law or they just were uncomfortable with smoking. And, you know, of course, there were edibles available on the legacy market, but it was pretty unpredictable. Of course, you, you know, you could get and of course, you have stories of people took a, you know, took a bite of a brownie and then they felt completely thrown for a loop or they ate a whole brownie because they had no idea and they ended up consuming probably 100 milligrams of THC and, and having a terrible experience. So that sort of um, unpredictability was removed with the legal marketplace so that if you pay attention to what you're consuming, you don't have to overdo it. You can really calibrate the way that you consume to not get too high, to not get high at all if you don't want to. So, you know, I, I think that that's, that's a huge advantage of a legal marketplace. And then also the testing, the lab tests, the fact that we know that these products are clean, that they don't have residual pesticides or fungi or molds, that's important too. If I was a new user and I'd never tried this before, what would you, how would you guide a person if you were consulting with them? How would you guide a person through testing, trying, finding the right dose for them? The first thing I would ask them is, is what are you looking to feel? How do you want to feel with cannabis? Because some people want more of that deep relaxation and anxiety relief. Some people are looking for a pick me up and cannabis can do that too. Or, you know, some people want to focus and get more creative. So it really just depends on, on their, their goals. Um, I would talk about CBD because I think CBD and THC, first of all, we know from the entourage effect that they, they support each other's work, that they actually do better together. Um, and secondly, I think that there's, there's this heavy emphasis on, on THC products for a lot of consumers um, who are you know, purchasing at dispensaries, maybe not balancing that out with CBD enough. And that can cause, I think, some potential mental health issues if you overdo THC and don't balance it with other cannabinoids like CBD. So I would, I would definitely educate them on CBD, get them on a you know, high quality, either edible or tincture that just kind of keeps the, the body at a better state of homeostasis. It helps reduce inflammation. It helps reduce anxiety for many people. It aids with sleep. So I would start there. And then after the CBD, I would ask, you know, are you looking to feel a little bit high? Are you looking to microdose? What do you want? And then we'd start adding just a little bit of THC at a time. So if it's an edible, I even say start with one milligram. That's tiny, but some people are sensitive enough to feel that and you don't want to overdo it. So start with a milligram, see how you feel. If nothing, you know, if you're not getting to where you want to be, then the next time try two milligrams or two and a half milligrams. So you very slowly titrate upwards. The edibles and tinctures that we have now in the legal marketplace are just so easy to dose out specifically. So it's no problem, you know, figuring out your milligrams. Is there is there a way, do you want them to do that? Like in, in serial days, subsequent days, take a break when you're sort of doing the upward titration? Well, with CBD, I would say keep it consistent. Start low, start with about 10 milligrams, and then, and then you can do that once or twice a day. And if you feel good, then stick with that. Otherwise, up it by a little bit each day. Or, or actually, I take that back. Up it by a little bit every few days until you really find your sweet spot. Because CBD, you can take 
every day and it's just supportive of the body's system in general. THC, it again, depends on what you want. If you're on vacation and you want to really go for it and try it out, there's no harm in trying THC every day as long as you're in a safe space. I don't recommend THC every day for a long period of time because then your tolerance tends to build. Oh, it does build tolerance. Oh, yeah. Yeah, your tolerance to THC builds so that generally speaking, people need a little bit more to feel the same way. That's why tolerance breaks. There's something that can just help reset that anywhere from two days to a week, something like that. So we've, when we're choosing THC, are we choosing, there's a whole bunch of strains out there, which, which I think ties back to what you're saying about anxiety, pick me up, like what are you trying to get out of it? For people who are just beginning, what are the different strains and sort of do you have any favorite blends that you like for those various purposes? So there are hundreds of strains and they all have fun, not all, but many of them have really fun names like Super Skunk Haze and, you know, Lemon Royale and, <laughs> you know, everything in between. The thing about strain names, however, is they're not entirely reliable because for decades, all of the breeding of all the cultivation of cannabis plants was done underground, right? It was done in prohibition at times. So there are strains on the, on the East Coast and strains on the West Coast that may be called the same thing, but actually are different if you compare them. So it's a little tough to, to, to name those. And also the thing is everyone's endocannabinoid system is unique. And so the way that I respond to a type of flower may have something in common with the way you respond, but it may not. And there tend to be kind of, you know, generally speaking, strains that we consider relaxing, like Granddaddy Purple is one of those. It's pretty chill for most people. And then there are strains that are considered more uplifting for most people, like Jack Herrer is one, um, Sour Diesel is another, Girl Scout Cookies is another, also more commonly known as GSC now because the Girl Scouts got mad. Um, <laughs> but, um, you know, I have to say that it does really depend. So the best way for people to figure this out is two things. One, um, smell the cannabis if you can before you consume it. Like actually take a deep whiff of it because our sense of smell is connected to our limbic system and our emotions and and just all that physiology in there is connected. I truly think that, and, and, and many people's experience bears this out, that if it smells good to you, it's probably going to be helpful for you in some way. Again, at the right dose. I mean, that sounds a little bit like a yoga teacher who trusts her body. Yes, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. And I trust that, you know, we know what smells good to us. People do. I love this idea of that. The strains themselves are different all over. They were non-stabilized. I was thinking about fine wines and how they have terroir and appellation and all of these standardization attempts over time. And I was and I wanted to do a small thank you to the people who sort of had the guts to hold out during prohibition and be seed keepers. Like that was a very risky lifestyle that excluded you from a lot of dominant culture activities, still does to a certain extent, banking and other things like that, but sort of believing in the plant and believing in people's freedom to choose basically to choose how they related to things that grow on the earth. So in there, I wanted to say something, but then I love that you brought in the idea of the plant meets you in a certain way because of your endocannabinoid receptors and how the smell is kind of a clue to whether or not it's a match for you. This is just such a beautiful representation of the dance between the individual and nature and the individual and medicine in general. I agree very much. Um, and that's one of the foundations of what I want to teach about 
cannabis is that it is a plant and we humans have relationship with plants. We have deep relationships with plants and they, you know, their food, their medicine. We use them in so many different ways. We use them for fiber and clothing and materials. So to me, having a relationship with cannabis also means having a relationship with the plant that grows in the ground. Where I live, I can't currently grow. So I'm not growing my own medicine or, you know, adult use cannabis. However, my family, we grow mint and basil and lavender and sage and all kinds of other herbs. And so that's one way that I teach my kids about cannabis. I say like, we use this mint, for instance, when you have a sore tummy, right? When, you're, when your tummy is upset, we use this mint, we put it in a tea, you just chew on it. It's a medicinal plant, even though it's also food, you know, it has these, these different uses. So does cannabis. Cannabis can be medicine. Cannabis can be fun, you know, at a certain age, not for kids. Um, so yes, absolutely. I think that acknowledging that it's a plant is really, really important. The other thing I was going to mention actually is, is terpenes. So terpenes are the aromatic compounds found in cannabis that also are shared with a bunch of other plants, you know, lime and lemon and pine and uh, hops and mango, etc. And so different cannabis actually smells different. People just associate, if they're not familiar, they associate cannabis with just one smell, kind of that skunky smell. <laughs> but actually, if you if you are inhaling freshly cured buds, you are you can get all kinds of interesting flavors from them, just like the you know the, the fine wines, right? With the bouquet of flavors in it. Cannabis has really diverse flavor as well. Um, you can actually taste those terpenes a little bit better when you're not combusting, when you're not lighting it on fire, but when you're vaporizing, not vaping, which is from like a distillate in an oil, but vaporizing using the flower in a device that just, just you know, turns it to vapor instead of smoke and you inhale and it. You can get all sorts of really delicious, tasty terpenes that also may influence the way you feel. That's so, that's like developing a nose for perfume or flavor in a other ways. Do you know about the Emerald Cup? Uh -huh. I lived in Northern California for a long time and, and they had the Emerald Cup even before it was legal. So that's a place where you're basically giving awards for the finest tasting, smelling, looking plants for those of you who aren't out there. So I think there are some good directories now of places that do give awards or rank, rate, describe um, different different strains and growers. Do you have any that you like to use? So I, I do try to give some of that in my book, actually, um, describing what the terpenes are and what the general effects associated with each one, or not each of them, because there are many hundreds of terpenes, but I, I break down about eight or nine of them. So that's a good guide. Some people use Leafly online. I would say take it with a grain of salt because, you know, like I said, there's just so much diversity within the, the genetics of cannabis right now that it's hard to say like this strain, anywhere you find it will have this flavor profile or this terpene profile, but it's, it's a good general guide. So le le on leafly.com, you can look up, you know, many, many strains and get some info. Now the mom part. So there's a couple of different aspects of this. You mentioned talking to your own children and letting them know that it's going to be appropriate at a certain time, but it's not yet. What do we know about children and cannabis? How does it impact them if they use it early? We don't have definitive evidence, but we think that there, well, that there is a correlation between early and heavy cannabis usage as a teenager, let's say, as you know, as an adolescent and teen, and developing um, mental health issues like anxiety, depression, schizophrenia even. So 
we we want to extend a lot of caution in those teen years. Um, of course, many people did consume when they were teenagers and didn't develop any of those um, conditions. And also, we're not we're not sure whether there's a, a correlational or a causational uh, um, relationship between those things. It could be that those who are predisposed to mental health issues are already self-medicating early, which makes sense. But the fact is that the brain is still developing for quite a while, right, until about 25 even. And so it's not ideal to add a lot of psychoactive substances during that time when the brain is still developing. So my message to kids, and it'll get a little more you know, complex and nuanced as they get older, as my kids become teens, because now they're eight and 11, but it's basically, yes, it's a plant, it's medicine for some adults, it's um, fun and relaxation for other adults that they might use in place of alcohol, for instance, but it's something that isn't good for kids developing brains and could make you feel pretty sick if you, for instance, ate an edible or something, and that's true. I don't wanna lie to them and I don't want to fear monger. I want them to respect it, though. I want them to be able to identify a THC product, whether it's you know, flour or edible. So I do show them these things. I'm open about my own consumption, but I'm also very clear this is an adult activity. So I, I like that you're so careful and respectful of their capacity to learn and distinguish things. And it also answers the question about how you guide them without it turning into some hypocrisy. You know, there's a, there, it's, it just sounds like a very sweet relationship, actually, between you and them on this topic. Do, do you extend that to other topics? Do you talk to them about alcohol and sex and other things in the same way? <laughs> Definitely. I mean, it, honesty is for sure, honesty and openness to the extent that it's appropriate for their ages is really important to me as a parent. So I absolutely do tell, you know, I, I get out ahead of a lot of conversations and say, oh, you you know, this might come up at school. You might, kids might start talking about private parts. Let's have that conversation now, you know? Um, so yes, proactive, getting out ahead of it and building trust. That's a huge part of it for me because I want them to actually trust that I have good information, that I will share it with them, that I'm not lying about the, you know, the harms of cannabis. Hmm because I want them to pay attention when I tell them about the harms of, of other things. There are actual true risks of death, you know, with many other things, not cannabis. <laughs> there is, what is that, the boy who cried wolf? There's no crying wolf in the brand household. <laughs> well, we try to minimize it. Tell it like it is. <laughs> alcohol, by the way, they have recently learned that alcohol acts in the brain as an opioid, not a depressant. A substance called THIQ is stored in the brainstem and it builds up over time. And it's that which, which makes it so addictive. So I want to add in this piece about alcohol versus cannabis as a relaxant on the weekends and, and how true addiction happens and how alcohol turns into an opioid. I don't want to, I don't want to miss that. Um, Cause I do think that's kind of, you know, one of the big things that's happening with is people are starting to really see just how damaging alcohol is to your health overall, but that the mechanism for why it works was largely misunderstood. And now you can see like how, how someone becomes like a real drunk, like it, it stores, it stores so much THIQ in the brainstem to the point where like one person, you can have one drink and you're completely drunk. It hits like a, a, a cutoff point, a, you know, and it never leaves. It cannot be removed from the body. So if you if you have it in you, it's always in you, and that's why it gets harder and harder to um, get sober. Interesting. I'm not up on that particular research. I mean, I did research about comparing the physiological effects to alcohol and cannabis, um, but I, I haven't gotten into that yet. Pretty. This is pretty new, and I, I, I think it's fascinating, and it totally explains it. You know, like 
because opioids are so addictive. I think you write about that also, you know, just how this is an, could be an answer to the opioid crisis in a lot of ways. Yes, in a lot of ways. And research is showing that in states where uh, legal or sorry, where medical cannabis is legalized, that opioid prescriptions decline. Okay, so I think you're very rational and sweet, and you are clearly conscious in the way you're consuming, the way you're communicating. You write this beautiful book, you're providing good information, and yet there still is an atmosphere of stigma in a lot of places, or if not stigma, at least hypocrisy. Like I know that three quarters of Americans approve of medical legalization or even recreational legalization, but half of them don't want a dispensary in your town. So what are you seeing in, in that regard? How, how is that in your community? Yeah, it's a really interesting moment that we're in, I think, in terms of cannabis acceptance and normalization, because, yes, on one hand, like you said, polls show overwhelming majority of Americans support legalization. And yet there still remains a lot of stigma for people who choose to consume or choose to consume in certain ways. And smoking is still the most stigmatized because, A, tobacco smoke is bad to, to you know inhale. And so we have that education. It's not the same about cannabis. Cannabis doesn't cause lung cancer, but we have that stigma. And also it smells, you know, and some people like the smell and some people don't. So the stigma absolutely remains. There's also this sense of, you know, this long-term stereotype of the lazy stoner and you can't be a responsible parent and a professional and consume cannabis too. But that's it is starting to fade and I'm seeing it more and more on social media and even in traditional media outlets where we're talking about weed is the new wine, for instance, you know, that's a, a trope you'll hear often, like weed moms are the new wine moms, that sort of thing. And so there is this like growing and somewhat grudging even acceptance and somewhat, you know, jokeifying, I would say, making a joke out of it, you know, but it's also regional. So in big states and coastal states where it's been legal for a little while or, you know, where there's just a mature, a more mature market and people realize the sky didn't fall with, with legalization. Kids are not using cannabis at higher, higher rates with legalization. People are just starting to realize, okay, this is, this is part of life. But there remain many, many people and many st entire, you know, regions that are just pretty closed off and where, you know, women can be not just stigmatized, but have their kids taken away if they test, you know, if they test positive for THC at birth, for instance. Um, and that's, you know, a whole can of worms. I don't know if you necessarily want to go into that story, but, you know, there, there are still legal threats to people, especially parents who choose to consume. I do want to go into that story because I think you're touching on a really important meta, two meta things. One is the inequity state to state for making choices that, you know, why is it that in one state for having a small amount of things I could be put in jail and have my entire liberty retained and another state, you know, they're going to send me investment for my great quality plant. It just doesn't make any sense to me, the state to state differences. That's number one. As an individual, as a sovereign being who's supposed to be able to meet, move freely from state to state. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other piece is how the state relates to women and bodily autonomy in general at birth. I guess it's, I guess that's a tricky one, huh? Like, you know, what we know that there are some mothers who have crack babies and those kids are brain damaged at birth. And so if you have a lot of bias, I guess, where would you draw the line as a state? 
I don't know. It's confusing to me. It's it's a tough topic, um, and something that comes up really frequently is you know usage during pregnancy and during breastfeeding for for moms because the, the reality is that a lot of women that the alternative to cannabis for them is pharmaceuticals. And there are many pharmaceuticals that are off limits during pregnancy and breastfeeding because either they cause harm or we just don't know if they cause harm. It's it's very difficult to do research on pregnant women, just generally, ethically speaking. You know, we don't have any double blind studies, let's say, on, on pregnancy, breastfeeding and cannabis. But what we do have is observational studies and we have surveys you know, so some kind of qualitative research around it, which generally, in my view, does not find a whole lot of harm from moderate consumption of cannabis during those times. However, it, there's probably more of a legal threat than there is a physical threat to, to moms who choose to consume in that time. Interesting. And CBD wouldn't have any issue because it's not psychoactive. It depends on where you are because any cannabinoid can show up on a test and even CBD in places where there's not uh, awareness around its psychoactivity could potentially trigger some issues. It's it's a sad state of affairs. Of course, there are midwives and doctors practices in legal states that choose not to, you know, test for THC and don't, you know, you know don't raise any alarms if if they do test. For THC, but you know it's really case by case right now. Well, we have our listeners in fifty states and about fourteen countries. So, if you're in a state that is supportive of the exploration of this, please enjoy it. And my ladies, my ladies, if you're in a state that's not, be careful. You know, one day, I just feel sad now, actually, about the the sort of relationship between the state and the individual. And people's need to control one another in general. I don't know. Took me took took me in a dark direction. Mm-hmm. Well, on a positive note, I do see cannabis connecting a lot of people, and that's something that gives me hope and optimism for the future in terms of our abilities to see past some of our differences. I I have made friends with and connected with women from all over the world who I never would have known had it not been for our shared love of this simple plant. Right. Um, So to see these communities being forged and I recently was able to go to the Women in Cannabis Expo in Reno, for instance, and just really immerse myself in cannabis culture that was women centric, too. And, you know, it's growing. Women in cannabis, I think, need to step up, take leadership positions, be entrepreneurs, like help shape this industry, because I think that truly as a cannabis advocate and activist and author and all those things, I think it can change the world, not all by itself and not, you know, not as our only tool, but I think it can help change the world, help make us a little more compassionate and connected and um, environmentally friendly too, if we make the right choices around this industry now. That is very uplifting. So you feel it makes you more personally open-hearted and compassionate? I do. I mean, that's something that I work on anyway. It's important to me as a, you know, former yoga teacher and, you know, heart-centered person. But yes, it's a tool that opens me up when I'm feeling closed off or when I'm um, stuck in my thoughts. Absolutely. I read in your bio that you were doing research on conflict resolution and nonviolence kind of stuff. Can you want to throw a little bit in there about that? <laughs> this was a while ago already, but I do bring it. So I went to graduate school for international peace and conflict resolution at American University and kind of dove into that 
policy and research world for for kind of a while. Burned out fairly quickly, found myself not, you know, long term sustained by it. But that, first of all, cultivating pieces is absolutely important to me, whether that's on the the personal, the intrapersonal level, the interpersonal level, the group level, international level, all of those are connected in my view. And I actually wrote my master's thesis on peace building and spirituality. So I brought, I was already bringing yoga into my, my academic pursuits at that time. Um, but also that, that interest in diving into research and really looking at what's been, you know, what's been studied and how it's been studied and what they've been looking for in their, in their studies. Are they looking for harm? Are they looking for benefit? Are they neutral? Like all of these tools I've I brought with me from the academic and policy worlds to what I do now as a cannabis writer. Yes, thank you for that. So now it explains a little bit more about this balanced view you take. Where can it hurt you? Where can it help you? Very rational. And what about your yoga? I mean, I do want to say I can remember being at a yoga teacher training in 2002. And there was a Russian guy there and I had a glass of wine at some reception that was happening. And he's like, how could you be a yogi? I can't do Russian. But he said, how could you be a yogi and, and have a glass of wine that, you know, you're supposed to be clean living, no intoxicants. How do you square those things? Well, for a long time, I didn't. Although I was a yogi who would have wine on the weekends, and I, I didn't feel a tremendous conflict there. But I had a stigma against cannabis. And so I thought that that was like another step, another level, and one that I wouldn't get to as a yogi, I wouldn't cross as a yogi, um, as a yogini. But it, it was through per my personal experience, like I said, that led me to start to shed some of those conditioned beliefs around what it is, because it isn't one thing. Cannabis isn't one thing. Cannabis is a tool that we can use really healthfully or, you know, to our detriment. It's both. And, you know, but ultimately it's a plant that has very little harm overall. And um, so I always want to honor that, like those natural roots. Thank you so much. Well, I hope everyone gets your book. I always like to uplift other women. So if there are other women in cannabis you want to speak to or give a plug to, this would be a great time to do it. Oh, well, um, for those who are on Instagram, there's a really vibrant mom and cannabis uh, entrepreneur, women cannabis entrepreneur community there. So if you follow me at Danielle Simone Brand, I interact with a lot of those other folks. Um, High Society Mama is a friend and a cannabis influencer and absolutely somebody whose um, heart aligns in the same way with like women's empowerment, women's wellness, environmental ideals. Um, so yeah, I want to call her out, Bianca. <laughs> All right. I love that. And then if you had one wish for the world, for the women of the world, you could wave your magic fairy wand, what would it be? So around cannabis, what I hope for, what I hope for is that women around the world start to shed the stigmas and the conditioning around this plant and see it for what it is. It's a tool that can absolutely um, help us feel better physically, mentally, emotionally, connect us you know, to our, to our communities and to our spirit. And so it's something that I would love to see more women see as an option. And maybe that's instead of alcohol or instead of pharmaceuticals, maybe it's not. Maybe it's just, a, you know, an addition where you get to reduce those other things a little bit. But generally, I want women to, to feel like this is an option and this is something that's accessible to them. You're just so articulate and lovely about all this stuff. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. 
I so appreciate people like Danielle who learn something, fall in love with something, and then go out of their way to document it for the people who are close followers. So check out her book, Weed Mom, Danielle Simone Brand. And if you are interested in more of the history aspect that I touched on in the beginning, look at Emily Dufton's book, Grassroots, The Rise and Fall and Rise of Marijuana in America. Whatever you're doing out there, try to maintain an open mind, try to do things that are good for your health and your well-being, and be free. Be free. Think for yourself. Love you. See you soon. Uh, Come find me, the.rose.woman on Instagram. Uh, Come find my company. We believe in plant magic. Although our products don't contain CBD or cannabis, they do contain other beautiful plants that assist in helping the skin heal and helping us feel better through all the stages of our life and life cycles at rosewoman.com. See you next time.